Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Outside Centre Film Podcast. Can I just say, Paul, that I'm so glad we're meeting once again to do this. Indeed, it's gonna, always fun. We're gonna blow I'm gonna if if we may blow our own trumpets here for a second, since no one else is gonna do Let's it. Let's do it. We're not paying anyone else to do it. Absolutely. We're not even asking for humble ratings on iTunes. We we do this for the love of it. We do it for you. We know you like we, we know you like it because you've downloaded it. So uh, we do appreciate all of your downloads, but uh, I just couldn't help but notice, Paul, recently on the old uh, Graham Norton's television programme on BBC One, mm-hmm. when Russell Crowe was on there, and he was yapping away about Noah, and Graham Norton was just so excited about it all, and there's me thinking, well, you know, if we're supposed to drop everything we're doing and rush to the cinema to see something as banal as Noah appears to be, then, you know, spare me. And it kind of really does underline... For me, what I hope we're getting across to everyone who's downloaded us is that there's a whole world of cinema out there and we're just trying to nudge you in the right direction, in our interpretation of what the right direction is. I.e. the truth. Well, we'll see. (laughs) Let's begin, blow our trumpet. You know, we know the truth and the best. I'd like to think so. Yeah, absolutely. I don't doubt for a second. We try our very best and no one's telling us what to watch. Indeed. So that in itself is a win. Uh, and of course this podcast is all about stuff that's either out now that maybe no one else is talking about stuff that's coming soon or stuff that you never got to know in the first place case in point all three this week um, we've got reviews of Waking Fright a re-release of a 70s Australian controversial film that's doing the rounds once again in the Art House cinemas Living Ingmar which we'll be talking about we'll also be um, talking about British film Metro Manila as well as looking back at Twin Peaks but first of all Paul We've got some news, and we've got some news from both of us, starting with yourself. And we've made we've made uh, we've, yeah we've made light of this in recent weeks uh, because it's, it's incredibly sad the amount of deaths that we've had in cinema in 2014. We've lost yet another iconic actor, and it's Mickey Rooney. And I think the the best quote about Mickey Rooney was the headline: "Child star dies aged 94." Yes, <laughs> star, and he's 94. Oh, if we could all be a child star that dies at the age well, of, of course, 94. we've we've lost Philip and and others, but we've lost, we lost Shirley Temple as well. Indeed. Just a matter of months ago, pretty much a contemporary of uh, Mickey Rooney's. Yeah, and and I think the thing about Mickey Rooney, and and, I, and I've said it before again. Oh, uh, when I said it about Shirley Temple, I bizarrely have seen most of Mickey Rooney's yeah. films. <laughs> because, again, when I was a child, we only had two channels. Or he was one. there when he started working. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and so it was always on, like the Andy Hardy movies. He, he made loads of them. And I've seen most of them. Yeah. And, and it is quite interesting because he is a kind of iconic actor of my childhood that he was still going then. And he is perhaps the only... Child, uh, the only actor to work from silent to post 20,000, 2000, uh, and he's appeared in 337 acting credits on IMDb from the silent to the golden age, then the studio era, and then into the independent. And, and he's made a vast range of films. He was married eight times, firstly to Ava Gardner. And, and again, you've got to think Ava Gardner yeah. is this little fat. Dwarf <laughs> married Ava Gardner, and Ava Gardner was probably the most beautiful in the world at the time. Beautiful woman, and that, Indeed, that's yeah. that. He gives us all hope. He gives you especially hope, short. He, give, he, like gives, yourself, he, he gives you hope, yeah. <laughs> but sadly, I'm not young, so I'm, I'm past my prime. But he gives you hope. That's what I mean. There. Not that you're a short fat dwarf, but we won't go Less into the that. fat, please. <laughs> and and I think he he. He was a he was a very good actor. He was, yeah. I think he he was in some controversial films. I think if you think about Holly Golightly in Breakfast in Tiffany's, he plays a Chinaman, uh, which is it's a deeply racist representation. But again, he threw himself into it, and it was what he wanted at the time. Classic film, indeed, yeah. indeed. And um, but my favourites were the comedies he did. It's a Mad 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 World, and again, yeah. on every year when I was a child, and even as an adult. You, you can't beat that kind of stuff. Plus, again, my era particularly, the rise of television that overtook yeah. cinema, he was the guest star in absolutely everything yeah. on television. That That is quite amazing from Murder, She Wrote, to Marcus Welby, LMD, to probably Canon, Rockford Files, you name it. He was in it as a guest star. And he, and he did some serious acting as well. Babyface Nelson, where he played Babyface Nelson, the gangster. Uh, and he did it very, very well. And it's interesting to see that he was 94 and he left 
$10,000, so that's the entirety of his estate. Mm. And in fact, even to this day, they're arguing over his body. Who gets his body to bury it today? Yeah. So, which, is, which is a classic Hollywood story, uh, fighting over the bodies. Uh, you know, Chaplin had his body kidnapped. The family are arguing over Mickey Rooney's body. It, it is, it's pure Hollywood. That is just fantastic. It may be unpleasant for the family, but it's what you want in Hollywood. But uh, but very un Hollywood in the fact that he literally worked until he dropped. Indeed, because a lot so many actors stop at mid seventies these days. It seems to be like the average age. I mean, and in fact, his last film isn't out yet, which is uh, Night at the Museum Three, because he was in Night at the Museum One. I'm not sure if he was in Two, but he's got a few films waiting to come out. And again, at ninety four, goodness, I hope we're working then. Well, you, you well, well, if you're nice to still breathe, then we'll really. probably still be doing Unaided. this podcast. <laughs> with any luck. I'll be doing uh, it from beyond the grave, obviously. Indeed, so, you'll but... be telepathically patronising <laughs> me with your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, and to have such a career is Terrific, incredible. Yeah. Uh, and you, you can't beat a man who, who made so many films. And, you know, a lot of them are crap. If you make three hundred and thirty-seven acting credits, two thirds of them will be rubbish. Yeah, but if, if you've if you've done one, if you've done at least one classic, that's a life worth living. Absolutely, and he's done more than one. Indeed, and I think that's he's done. I'd say five or ten. You know, the Adventures of Huckleberry, one every decade. Yeah, he managed to do a good one every decade, and even his cameos, like in in the first or the big Muppets film of a couple of years ago. And it's quite interesting to go and see like the Muppets now with all the guest stars in it. They they throw in old people for us old folk and yeah. our grandchildren to see it. And I, I was a big fan of Mickey Rooney, and I was disappointed not to see him in Panto in Sunderland only about two years ago. He was in Panto in Sunderland. Which, so how, how does that relate to your life exactly? Where, where <laughs> were you at that time? How does Sunderland relate? To Sunderland you? just seemed too far away in the north. You've got to remember, I'm from the south, so the, you know anywhere in the north is a bit scary for me. But it, but it was kind of like. I went to see uh, Oscar Peterson in concert, and he wasn't very good <laughs> because you knew he was going to die. <laughs> but it was like you could see him once, yeah. and and that's what I would have liked to see Mickey Rooney. But sadly, I missed it. But you know, next time round. Indeed. Well, thanks a lot for that. Let's move on to our next bit of news. I've got three pieces of animation news for you, Paul, mm. and I've entitled it "Good, Bad, and Ugly." What would you like to hear first? Uh, let me hear the ugly. The ugly. Frozen has become the highest-grossing animated film in history. Which is frightening. Which is truly, truly frightening. Now, I'm always willing, Paul, to try and be convinced on anything that I say. I don't, I'm not sure whether you're the same. I'm sure you are the same, I'm sure. If someone comes up to you and says, Paul, what you said about Newfoundland was utter rubbish. I'm sure you have a reasoned debate before telling them to F off. Absolutely. But um, I've never been so adamant in my life for a film being utter tripe than Frozen. And I've, I, I, you know, anyone who has followed me on Twitter and maybe have got bored of me and whatever, every week I have a go at somebody who mm. likes Frozen. Yeah. I've, I've, I've come across a lot of people that worship mm. the pants off that film, and I cannot fathom it, Paul. Uh, well, it is even more baffling because, for example, oh, I recently went to see the the Muppets Most Wanted, which you liked. Yeah, I saw, I saw you like that. I really liked it, yeah. but more importantly, the songs are brilliant. Just like the one that won the, the, won the Oscar, Absolutely. Man, Man or Muppet, again, in the, the first Muppets. There's yeah. like five, six songs that are just fantastic. Yeah. Catchy, they, they pull you in with a tag. And Frozen, again, just such a dull animation. But the songs were awful. And I am, I am genuinely amazed that that is the case with it, that it is so successful and it's made so much money. And you just think, goodness me, are people that dumb? Go and get something else. Frozen, just kill me before well, I have to see it again. again I've, I've made my I've made my feelings clear on Ernest and Celestine. You didn't quite agree with all of them, but even you said that that was a million times better than Frozen. Well, it had but, its but, merits. But, but, not, but not even just Ernest. I mean, even the weaker Pixar films of the last ten years, each and, each and every one of them, for example, A Bug's Life is particularly low down on the list, that had some merit to it. Absolutely. It had ambition that I believed in. And that is very, very important for me. If you're going to have such a massive budget... Then make me believe that you haven't just wasted yeah. it on this absolute. Well, it, it, it was a knockoff of, of a well-known legendary story, anyway. I presume that our problem is is we're not five-year-old little girls. So, but, but I, <laughs> but we talked about this on one of the other episodes. Um, what would they get out of it? Because 
you know, Tangled made by the same people. Mm. That is the classic fairy tale with a twist. And that I kind of made it made sense to me. It wasn't too bad. This is literally the Snow Queen with horses with big eyes. So it's basically tangled with a slightly new story. It's, and crap songs. And, crap, and, and, and songs that don't work not even half as well. So it is completely baffling. So I'm glad you chose that one first. So get my spleen out of the <laughs> it way. It is quite, quite baffling. And in, in a way, it's beneath contemptible. It is really that bad. Good or bad next, Paul? Uh, let's go for the bad. The bad? I'd like to end on the good. Pixar tweeted out that Cars 3 is in production. Uh, now, I, 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 the reason I call this bad and not ugly... Is, is because it actually ties in quite nicely to something, which, something we said on the last episode of the podcast and how when the when when um, for franchises where there's a third one and the second one was crap the third one is usually quite good yeah. and Cars 2 was an abomination Cars 2 was for me the top three worst picks I don't want you holding back when you call it an abomination it was it was for me truly truly atrocious Bottom three Pixar of all time, without doubt. Mm. Um, so, therefore, Cars 3 will probably be okay. Yeah, but even Cars 3, because I'm not a big admirer of Cars 3. I, don't, I must admit, I don't particularly like any of them. But the first one had I his... can see the attraction yeah. of it. And I can see that for its target audience, particularly younger children... The Happy Meal generation. Yeah. Let's be brutally honest, this Absolutely. is the one that makes Pixar the you, money. You can have a toy out of it. And, you you know, even when I was a kid, we had toys that looked a bit like that with faces on, anthropomorphised. <laughs> and you can see the attraction. And it has a bit of wit. And do they sing in it? I can't remember. No, there aren't really any songs. It's just got the celebrity voices that are here, yeah. the proper celebrity. And so it Owen Wilson something. will be back. And so, and again, it may not be to my liking, but I can appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, again, unlike Frozen. Unlike Frozen. Yeah, and I think I think it'll be good depending on whether John Lasseter's involved. Now, for me, there's the man that uh, he's, he's going to sound incredibly harsh to call the creative Toy Story one a disaster area, but that's what he is. Mm. That's what he's turned into. He's executive producer on every new Disney Pixar film, yeah. not Pixar Pixar, Disney Pixar, Disney i.e., Pixar. Frozen, Tangled, Wreck It Ralph, etc. Yeah. Although Wreck It Ralph wasn't too bad, so he directed Cars two as well. So if he's involved with Cars three. It's going to be shit. <laughs> it's well, uh, unless they get such a good script that even he can't ruin it, which is always. But a isn't it one of the worrying? One of the quotes that came out of Cars Two, well, and we said we wouldn't swear, but oh well, we've, we kind of abandoned that. I'll say you've no, lost no, that. Well, no, no talk. No, we, we promise we won't talk about genitalia. That is guaranteed. But um, there's um, one of his quotes that came out of the production of Cars Two was that he could not believe how much fun filmmaking could be whilst he was making Cars 2. And then you watch Cars 2, and he's bored out your absolute school with this atrocious narrative that just that sends itself round the bend, never mind the people watching it. Well, often I think if you are enjoying making it, you're not doing it right, because right. it's a serious job. That's... You know, Mel Brooks always used to say, there's yeah. nothing funny about comedy. Perfect. It's yeah. about, you know, it's serious. It's the most serious business there is. So if you're enjoying it, you're not doing it right. That's right. <laughs> shall, we move on, shall, we, shall we move on to the good bit the of good. news? The good bit of news, Pixar tweeted out... Mm-hmm. that The Incredibles 2 is in production. Now, I'm a big, big fan of, the, of Incredibles, and it's taken far, far too long for a sequel to come out. It was the Pixar... It's, it's, conversely, to the bottom three of Cars, Incredibles, for me, mm. is in the top three of what Pixar have ever done. It it's had so everything inc- going for incredibly it. Incredibly witty, yeah. and particularly for my age as well. You know, I'm not a comic book fan, but it's got all the nerdy kind of culture to it, video games, comic books... Even just action movies from the 80s, even. There's a lot of stuff like that in there. It's got some nice voices. Nice voices. They're not all just stars. There's, no, there's a nice blend. Yeah, yeah. some good actors. D- a in really there. unique visual style as well. It's their, it's their most uniquely looking, I think. So, what year was Incredibles 1? 2009 ish. Really? Probably even longer than no, that. Probably longer right? than that. Probably Maybe 07. Probably even a bit longer, I think. But I, but I, I think it is one of their best. And 2004. 2004, well, there we go. That 2004. Shows you, you know, that, that's, uh, that's a staggering it's 10 number. years since that's they announced it was going to come out for a second time. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, if you look at the cast, even like Jason Lee, Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunt, they're not things you. They're not A listers, are they? No. Absolutely. And the voice of Wallace Shawn, and I'm a big fan of Wallace Shawn. Yeah. If you don't know who Wallace Shawn is, look him up. So that's a little conglomerate of animation news there. Not sure about... Um, it truly is the good, bad and the ugly. It really is. I'm not sure release dates for two of those three, or in fact, for any of them. Um, but um, interesting enough, the next Pixar film that's coming out next year is going to be fantastic. 
um, before we do our reviews for this week, just thought I'd bring this up as well. It's called Inside Out, and it's focusing on four emotions inside of a young girl's mind, directed by, I believe his name is Brendan Stanton, who directed Up and the original Monsters, Inc. It's a winner. Well, to me, Up is probably up there as the best animation, I think. Up had everything. Yeah. Absolutely beautifully so made. The, up wins. So the people people who say the Pixar maybe won't return to their great heights. So I think, I think you know, we've got some good stuff coming out. So it's a lot to look forward to over the next few years. Absolutely. In fact, there's two films next year as well. So we've got a double-header from them, which will be really exciting. Let's move on to reviews. Starting off, Paul, with, um, we mentioned it already, Waking Fright, the uh, controversial 1971 Australian film that's having a, a rebirth. Indeed, Waking Fright, 1971, again, as you said, Australian, uh, with, with the primary English lead and two English leads, Donald Pleasance and uh, John Grant, he plays the teacher, made by uh, Gary Bond. Gary Bond, yeah. And it, it's, it's quite interesting, again, when I started going to watch films... Yeah. In the mid seventies, all films were like this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was nice to go back to and buy all films were like this. Often the dialogue, the recording of the dialogue was uh, done naturally. Yeah. So a lot of it was potentially incomprehensible, <laughs> and it was pre-subtitles on anything. And and equally, it's very real. Yeah. Very absolutely. ultra kind of realism. So this one is very controversial for showing the slaughter of. Kangaroos in a hunting scene, and they really are killing these kangaroos. And again, in the in the kind of early mid seventies, all films were like this. Uh, if they could have killed people in films, they would have done it in the mid seventies for that extra realism. And uh, but the story is about this bonded teacher who, who's working in the outback. He, he doesn't particularly like it. It's pretty dull. He's going back home, and he ends up stuck in 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 this sort of middle of nowhere. City. It's a big town as opposed to sort of a nowhere. And he gets hooked into some gambling. And then he gets uh, further hooked so he can't leave. So he ends up spending all of his summer break there uh, where he goes hunting, gets drunk, uh, (laughs) vomits over someone he's going to have sex with. Again, (laughs) it's not a shock if you grew up watching films in the 70s. Uh, And you do get the feeling it's probably real vomit. (laughs) Given that, uh, again, because the main actor was in fact... And again, I love watching these kind of things. Because when you look up and around about Gary Bond, you're thinking, whatever happened to Gary Bond? Uh, You know, a really interesting... He's a kind of uh, version of early Peter O'Toole. Yeah. And you you saw him and you think, oh, this is really like Peter O'Toole. You're not sure whether you should like him or be scared of him. Absolutely. He was gay and he was the partner of the guy who played Sherlock Holmes on television. Uh, Jeremy Brett who who was married at the time to a woman Uh, and then Gary Bond died of AIDS and he died within a month of Jeremy Brett dying of of heart disease and mental illness and Sylvia Kay, the woman in it who is the kind of actress you remember seeing a lot of British stuff at the time was actually married to Ted Kotcheff the director who's a Canadian and of course Ted Kotcheff is now the producer of Law and Order Special Victims Unit And, and so there's whole loads of stuff going in there and the story again is a roller King rush through uh, the backwards mentality of Australians yeah. who are drink, probably rapists, <laughs> uh, with anything, including animals, probably, and they like to kill and gamble. And there's a lovely story where there's a screening of it. And one of the members of the public stood up and said, this isn't Australians. And one of the Australian lead actors shouted, sit down, it is us. (laughs) (laughs) And and so... Particularly on the outskirts. Absolutely. No doubt. And it's very visceral. It's very kind of realism of the 70s. And I, I really enjoyed it. I'd like I'd like to see the Blu-ray because it's come out on Blu-ray for the first time because I, it looks stunning as it is, Absolutely. and I bet it looks great at the cinema. Yeah. So I can only imagine how good the Blu-ray is going to look. Yeah. I also enjoyed it. I, I, it's basically a guided tour, isn't it? It's even, even you can't even say a lot happens in it. I think you can almost say it's a western. Yeah, you could say it's a western with with with, drink, with drinking yeah. instead of shooting each other. They're just shooting animals and drinking a lot. It's it is a guided tour of the outskirts of the civilized outskirts <laughs> of Australian society. My, my, the, the, this is this is my second favorite film of the week, albeit a shorter week this week because there's three. Um, and and the reason it probably doesn't take the top spot is because 
been re-released because it got banned um, quite quickly after after it came out the first time. I have to view this from, let's see why it was banned, let's see how controversial it is. And whilst it was controversial, I actually would like a little bit more out of it. Mm. Well, I think it was dated. You, you it, didn't watch it, it thinking... You know, if you thought this would be made now, the realism would be a lot more uh, effective. But and it, and it, oh, is, oh, it is of its era. I, and I, I think, actually, again, that's why it makes it the. Second I actually best think story. I actually think the kangaroo stuff was 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 appallingly brilliant. Absolutely, and, 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 and lots and, and, of and, it. But again, it, again, the, the cutting and, and the kind of pace of it. So it, it went very slow, very quick, very slow. And I think it needed a bit more evening out. And if it had been made now, it would have been, apart from the special effect kangaroos that would have been used. It's nice to see. If you, I was thinking, if you're going to kill an animal, kill an animal. No, uh, against the, killing this, animals. The, watching this made me instantly think of uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Now, it came out... doesn't always spring to my mind. No, no, no sure. <laughs> uh, it's sure. Well, no. <laughs> but um, it, it came out nine, nine years after this. Yeah. Um, more controversial, equally, if not more controversial, animals... animals beheaded and all the rest of it. Yeah. Having seen that a few months ago, and now having seen this, I kind of got I've got more out of Cannibal Holocaust for the controversial side than this. And that isn't to say that Waking Fright had to have a lot more, necessarily had to have a lot more in it. I'm just merely saying, in terms of things being banned, in terms of things coming back, we'd be having this discussion if Cannibal Holocaust came back. Yeah. Um, because it's been out, it's been back for quite some time. I was just—I just wanted a little bit more, but that's entirely down to me. And what, but what was there was gripping. I, I thought—I thought it was really, really disturbing film. It, away from the kangaroo stuff, I thought the fact that everyone was constantly sweating, and the speed at which people were drinking beer was absolutely was quite something. I mean, we think we're a country of drinkers, but let's go back to Australia and, and let them show us how it's done. But mind you, they have smaller glasses than we do, don't they? So. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Donald Pleasance is really good. He, uh, he, he, I, I, as someone who travels a lot, as you know, as you, you, you do yourself, Paul, his isolation comes across quite nicely because he is this very, very well-spoken, posh English boy. He hasn't got any of the Aussie, the Aussie accent yet. I mean, you don't know how long he's been training, uh, he's been teaching there. But he is... You know, he's from he's from he's from High Wycombe, isn't he? Let's be honest. He sounds like he is, and that's where he's from. And and, and he sticks out like a either what he's wearing. He makes no effort. To, he, he makes no no effort to integrate. Mm. I'm not connected with that because I've been there many many times. And I think it's nice because again, it's so un Hollywood. And to some extent, uh, even Metro Manila, which we're talking about later, suffers from this. <clears throat> A lot in Waking Fright is inexplicable. Yeah. You have no idea why they're there, yeah. what they're doing there, and if they ever leave. Yeah. And it is just a moment of these people's lives where they all come together <laughs> in a particularly awful, dreadful way that is so real, it's ordinary. And I think, I, I quite, and again, all films in the 70s yeah. were like that, yeah. were, had completely inexplicable things that were never explained. And you came out wondering, goodness me, what was that? And I, it was it was a nice flashback for me, and I did really enjoy. Yeah, it. Yeah, I think I think people should. Um, I think go and spend six pounds on it. Yeah. Go, go down to your local art house cinema, and, and it does it have out. a beginning, middle, and end. It's not completely inexplicable, but it doesn't explain in detail why this character's here and why he's doing that. It's just there's, a nice, there's some nice humour. I enjoyed the gambling scenes. Yeah. The gambling scene is probably my favourite. Very, very interesting. And again, an interesting even, even, even when it comes to the technique of flipping the coins up into absolutely. the air, and then absolutely. the uproar when he didn't do it correctly, just absolutely fascinating. And the, the honesty of all the gamblers, despite they're all, the fact that they're all kind of drunk men who'd, who'd, who'd rape a kangaroo if it walked past. I think it says an awful uh, lot about. <laughs> I think it says an awful lot about me that the film actually makes me want to visit Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was just because of the sunshine. Indeed, <laughs> forever hot, forever beautiful. Very, very interesting film. Anyway. Uh, moving on to our second second of the three reviews this week, uh, a documentary. Indeed. First documentary we've done on the podcast, and I, and I think we should do some more, really. Cause, uh, oh, I think it would be good. Live and Ingmar. Live and Ingmar, which is, which is basically Liv Ullman talking, yep. almost for the entire movie, about her relationship with Ingmar Bergman, who yeah. she did marry, she had a daughter with, he had a, she had a daughter with, and then they separated, but then they continued to make films. Uh, and it was made by a new Indian filmmaker called Dijaraj Akalaka. And 
It, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I think it was it was it was a tad sentimental, but again, it worked with it because but if someone's look- she is sentimental. Well, yeah, but well, that's the point. It's sentimental because she is looking back at her life sentimentally. Absolutely, so. Absolutely. and so it worked. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think, uh, <laughs> I, and the the advantage of it is in describing all of the moments of her life. They would show a clip from a film she had made with Ingmar Bergman yeah. that was. What she was implying, and I think we were supposed to take from it, was pretty much reflective of their relationship at the time. The film would be about their relationship, whether they hated one another, whether they were married or they were separated, or whether they were temporarily back together again, and all of those kind of experiences. And it was nice to see those films, except, and this is where I, I always want to see another documentary where those actors who are in the clips talk about their experience. So she talks about there's a boat scene where Ingmar Bergman particularly hates her at that moment. And so they're out on a boat and it's her and Max von Sydow and he, Ingmar Bergman, the director, is making Liv Ullman suffer. Yeah. Because he hates her at that moment. I would have liked to have heard Max von Sydow pop up at that point (laughs) and say, yeah, he was a bit of a wanker. (laughs) I was as cold, but he didn't care about me. He just wanted to make Liv Ullman suffer. And so I would have liked... Again, it would have been a different documentary, so I'd almost like to see another documentary. That's right, yeah. Separate. Because it, one of its strengths, although I'm saying it's a weakness, was that it was only Liv Ullman talking. Mm. Uh, but it worked, I think. It, it, it flowed well. There was enough archive film of, like, she goes off to Hollywood, etc., and all that kind of stuff. She never quite becomes the big star she probably deserved. And so I, I did enjoy it. I think it, it, it wasn't a, a challenging, radical document. No, no, sure, sure. But again, that made you just sit back and let it wash over you. The scenery was br- brilliant. It looked fantastic. And the clips of these emotional Swedish dramas. Uh, and again, I suffered from the same mistake as everybody else. I presume she was Swedish. And obviously she's not. She's Norwegian. Norwegian, yeah. Uh, and that kind of flip over of that. So, yeah, I would recommend it wholeheartedly. Yeah, talk a little bit about documentary before I have a, ch- a crack at this because we all, we've said we've said before, and, it, and I think everyone knows for themselves that TV's becoming more like film, and films become more. And you could say, even say that a lot of them cases, films become more like TV. Yeah. Uh, for example, that Danish, that bloody Danish one you made me watch the other Skyton, Skyton, the other episode, which I'd still recommend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, I'd, I'd recommend for the same fire that she, that Liv was nearly chucked into, um, and and we've seen some, we've seen some truly truly great documentaries ourselves, mm-hmm. Paul. I mean, for example, the one that followed the Klitsch goes about that was really really good. Indeed. Um, Indeed. Did you did you ever get to see the Ayrton Senna one? Uh, yep, that was terrific. Uh, Man on Wire, that was another good one. I mean, there's, there's, I really enjoyed Man on Wire. Yeah, the, to be honest, there's far too many to mention. I mean, even things like uh, Searching for Sugar Man went down really well, and there, there was that one that, that talked to the Israeli. Um, security forces who yep. th- that off the names escaped me for the Unbreakables perhaps something like that. Um, but I didn't like this one, Paul. You didn't like? I it. didn't like it. I the big problem with all those documentary. Well, it's not a problem at all. It's just a fact. Of matter of fact, with any documentary, you've got to connect to the people that are talking, and if you don't, you've had it. I agree. And I, I, I could not get on with Liv. I found it sickly sweet. Particularly early on, as I'm sure is perfectly understandable. <laughs> Overly romanticised, you alluded to that as well. But even during the bad point, she's still her eyes are glistening and she's swooning over even the bad moments. And I just kind of think, yes, you're right, she didn't become the, the star that she maybe deserved to. But she's only got herself to blame. And she's looking back at her life and her obsession with one man. Not a life well lived. And I think she needs to get. I think she needed to have gotten over him. <laughs> Some people you just can never get over with. When now, you're old and you're uh, thinking about, am I? You'll never get over me, Theo. <laughs> I won't forget anyway. But, but I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. But I think it, it had one little thing that overcame that. In that, I actually thought that this. You could see it that it wasn't necessarily taking everything she said as truth. And it was about how an old person yeah, yeah. romanticises the life gone. That is true. And I think if you saw it in that way, but I agree, there were lots of things that made you just think, oh, fucking hell, but because, move on. But because, it, because <laughs> it's a documentary, you do have to bring your own yeah, absolutely. interpretation to it like yeah. this. And I, I just couldn't click with her. Yeah. 
Um, I think, I think, and again, because I'm nearer to death than you are, I think, and how you distort the past is much more something I would do than you do, because when you're young, you live it. And I, I think, I, I think that the, actually the filmmaker was cleverer than Liv Ullman thought he what she right. was, yeah. and that he was actually sort of almost saying, "You're right. This is your distorted view of the past, and you should yeah. really move on because this is." Completely screwing up your life. Because ba- let's be honest, Ingmar was quasi paedophile. Was a quasi paedophile. Well, <laughs> but there's some of his. But if some of his behaviour was, was borderline that. Well, whatever you know. it was. <laughs> but uh, but no, it, it, and if she was younger, it, this we would be talking about paedophilia here. Yeah. She was. She was. A, she was above the legal age. But the, the kind only of just. only just the kind of stuff that he was doing to her. Yeah. That is the level that we're talking about. And yes, she kept. You know, she faced. You know. Her isolation that she often felt, it was all down to her. I know a domestic <clears throat> abuse happens, and I'm not, I'm not attacking that or anyone that suffered from that. But even her, you know, when she said she loved on the, what, was it the Wednesday she had free? Just yes. the absurdity of yeah. having one day free a week yeah. away from Ingmar. I love this man who keeps me imprisoned. What? <laughs> and then, and then, oh, but I really love it when I go across the island on a Wednesday to to, to do all those things young girls do. And you just think, <laughs> you. You are a crazy. You are an absolutely crazy bitch. But I think that that was the point of the film, <laughs> yeah. and I think if you saw it as that, rather than got sucked into the sentimentality, which was very easy to do, yeah. it actually gives it a whole new spin that makes it a lot better. And, and I, I think if I was Liv Ullman, I wouldn't have liked this in retrospect. No, I thought, oh goodness. I me. wonder if she watches it back, what she thinks of it. Well, as again, the, the voice again that I would have really liked to have heard is their daughter. Yeah, because they had a daughter, so there is another third person living, and 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 that again, you thought, just give me another voice. So I'd, I'd actually like to see another documentary where all the other people get to speak, where we hear the, the true side. But to me, the big problem with a lot of documentaries is it's a it's a way into doing fiction features, and again, I think the guy who did uh, Man on a Wire has now yeah. done a couple of fiction features, and it's a shame when you see a good documentary filmmaker have to either for career or for money or for, for kind of recognition, leave documentary and go into filmmaking. And that's why I'm a big fan of Michael Moore. You may not like his films, you may not like him, but he pretty much sticks to documentary. Morgan Spurlock as yeah. well. And you've got to admire that. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't get sucked into, oh, let's go make a feature film and be a feature film director. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said I wanted another documentary of this, but I would. Have, I mean, I, I, only, I only saw an hour. I missed the last time. I just had. I was just getting more and more wound up by... Yeah, well, it got worse. As soon as she mentioned a theatre, I thought, right, that's it, I'm off. Yeah. So I, I did not want to hear her yeah. kind of being overcome while she was on stage. I well, imagine. I think a good example of that is at one point she says that she's in a play in Broadway. Uh, and, and this he, was the point I turned off. Yeah, Ingmar Bergman <laughs> decides to fly over from Sweden the day before, watches the matinee, and then goes home the day after. And she's saying, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, you know, he never, he hated flying, whatever. That. You could see it. He was praying to God that she was filed. I, I, would, I want, As I said, I wouldn't want another documentary on this. What I would like to have happened, and, it, you know, put this in a 40-minute, Imagine with Alan Yentov. Should we move to our final review then? Indeed, my film of the week, um, Metro Manila. <laughs> now, one of the, my, one of my long-standing jokes, Paul, as I'm sure you know, is most British films would actually be watchable if they had subtitles. Yeah. The problem is that it's not a joke; it's actually <laughs> true. Case in point, this one. It's about uh, Oscar Ramirez and his family from Manila in Cambodia. Who, quite simply, they flee their impoverished life. Uh, they're on the outskirts, not even in a village, they're on the yeah. they're in, they're they're on, on a hillside. They're on a hillside somewhere. And they move to Manila to try and make a living for themselves. And uh Oscar joins now I really got confused about what he actually joined. It's essentially one of those kind of um armoured trucks that goes to banks and drop the money off and then goes back in the truck. Back to the depot. Securable, basically. Secure, yeah. But they also work for individuals. But they also do, that's why I got confused. Yeah. It's not simple. It's not as simple as just doing banks. They also do clients, families, and all the rest of it. Yeah. Anyways, he gets himself a job there, and she gets herself a job in a bar, where she has to take her clothes off and do all sorts of very, very uh, despicable things. Rude stuff. Rude stuff. Um, I thought it was an engaging film. I liked the characters. They felt real to me. Um, two things I'd like to bring up mostly, and this is why it is my film of the week. First of all, 
aside from the fact it was, I thought it was brilliantly well shot by a director who, who I had never heard of before, and I looked at his, I looked, I've looked at his works, and he has done nothing of note, which again is another reason. It's, it's probably the third reason why this film impressed me so much. Like, who's the guy that's done it, and why is it, why hasn't he done anything like this, you know, before? Because he's really, really for me, he did a great job on this. He's a Brighton lad. Yeah, uh, but um, first thing I'd like to bring up about why I like this film so much is that how little the characters actually speak mm-hmm. and how little the characters actually moan about their own situation. The, the pair of them and the child. I mean, ironically enough, the child is the, child is the one that moans the much because of toothache. That's the only thing she moans about. But Oscar and her wife, they're clearly not happy to be in this, this hustle-bustle city. They're clearly living in a, in a dire apartment block for a while. They're not happy there. But they don't moan about it. And the director doesn't try to make you feel sorry for them. He presents them as a family that are just trying to make a living for themselves. And that's it. Yep. No violins. No zooming out. None of that kind of gushy nonsense that Spielberg would do, for example. <clears throat> that's why I think the characters were real to me. Would you agree with that? I would say it is the film of the week. Yeah. I agree with you completely. And the reason it is is because it, it actually refers back to Waking Fright. It's like a film from the 70s. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. But a kind of an American film from the 70s that was realistic, gritty, uh, original, innovative, uh, but challenging. And I liked all of that. I love the irony that it was the UK's official foreign language Oscar submission. Yeah. It was well acted, and I think it was original. It had a nice structure, yeah. uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end, that was, you thought, oh, it was it, you were surprised but just an enjoyable way i think it, it it veered on being a bit slow at certain times it did yeah but again it was in it was in the interest of the narrative it was in the interest of having a character but isn't life depth. isn't life yes. so slow yes. for all of us so to, to <coughs> show, in, yeah but in, i don't want to watch your life there no <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sure you definitely don't want to watch my life yeah <laughs> but uh, i know what you mean yeah. well acting superb by all <clears throat> I think the, the the reason I think that is because I thought the casting was actually spot on. Now that is one thing that I do like about British films is that they actually normally do get the casting pretty much spot on. The Laughing Buddha was great. Yeah, he was terrific. Nice little bit of comedy. The head of the the company who Oscar works for, and some genuine humour was to be found in a very very bleak film. Mm. Um, but not only him, you know, Oscar himself was great. Everybody, they were all great. You know, they really, really worked for me. I, I think it, it didn't have a weak point no. at all, and I think that that was that was made it by far the, the film of the week. And I think no. The, so did, did you did you did you enjoy the music? I thought it was because you know I'm like I, I like my quiet films and my silent films. Yeah. I, but <clears throat> there, there were there were and again, well, so, I would say I generally didn't notice the music. Yeah, no, I right. think that's a good thing. The, 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 rather typically for these kind of films, when they put the music on, it's when they're showing wide shots of this city. Yeah. So it's like, let's take a brief pause so you can so you can contemplate on how much the family are suffering. Here's some music. Yeah. Back to the family. Yeah. But I didn't mind it, and it's and you, you called it original, and it certainly is original in terms of um, certainly the way that it's shot and the way that it's looked. But narratively, I think it's kind of stuff I've seen many, many times before, as as of you. Yes. But it doesn't matter. Indeed. And that, and, and that is a plus point for me. But I think what I liked about the originality, because I think you have seen the narrative before, the story before, and even the twist before. But the point is, is you've got an hour of developing a character where it makes that narrative that then follows of... Because fundamentally, it's a heist movie. In, in one guise or another, it makes it so that the characters are real, you care, they matter, and you're concerned what's going to happen, not just to him, to the family, to the to children. And I think that's what was original about it, that it that it gave you the build-up to it that was worthy of it, in a way that rather than it, was, it wasn't it was a series of set pieces, which normally these kind of host movies are. There's, yeah. It's kind of set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece, end. And I like the fact that you, that you basically have almost three quarters of the film is the setup, and it's a lengthy setup, but it but it absolutely draws you in and delivers the logic to everything that follows. Gorgeous ending. Yeah, I don't want us to say a single word on it apart from how I got emotional. I must admit. Now you might not think I'm You're cap- a you might not think I'm capable of such a things, but I genuinely was blown away. <laughs> was blown away by the beautiful... The well, be- Frozen made you cry, but just in the wrong way. 
<laughs> Frozen made me want to go and take a long walk in the forest. This no. this made me this this, this a on tears a, swelled up in your eye, didn't it? Close enough. No, no, I think it did. I know I'm we're it, laughing, it, it, but I think it does. If if you've bought into it from the beginning and you've and, stayed with and it, and I, I I'm reasonably convinced that everyone listening to this will buy yeah. into it because it's so engaging and it's not an exploitative one no that's designed to make you uh, kind of weepy at the end you are because of all that you've seen before and that's what i think was original about it it wasn't about it wasn't about the manipulation of it because that was so easy to do what spielberg would do what hollywood do it was because you'd bought into who these people were because you'd, uh, you'd you'd been with them through the through the entire journey. The, the director isn't manipulating us. He's not manipulating the characters, and the characters aren't manipulating us either. Yep. Like everyone is just playing it straight. And I I would like to I would like to think this might make it on the the film of the year list. I think it is that good, particularly from from British film. Now, I've made my things relatively clear on this. I am not a fan of British cinema. And when I hear people say that Britain needs to make more safe films, that also makes me want to go and take a long walk in the forest because this is not a safe film and it's one of the best British films I've seen for many, many years, probably since we need to talk about Kevin, which again was another completely original, not safe, engaging, real British film. I, I, I would dread the fact that if this had been made in Britain... It would have, uh, you know, they would have said, oh, you need Danny Dyer or you need Jason <laughs> Jason Statham. And, and, and I, I love Jason Statham. I think if you just empty your mind and watch his forget, film. Forget your armoured vehicle chase. Exactly. Let's have an actual car chase yeah, with right. Jason Statham. But again, and I thought, you know, you do probably need to go abroad to make a, an interesting original film if you're British. Yeah. And I think that that's its strength rather than, uh, you, you do, you just dread that this had been made in Britain. Uh, and uh, uh, and partly because it's too original for Britain. Yeah. Uh, because we do make almost entirely safe, correctness films, and if they have anything to do with the working class, they're just uh, embarrassing. So, but isn't this film more of a thing for Eastern, for, e- for Far East Asian culture than yeah? Then you know what I'm going to mention. Yeah. <laughs> than that absolute. Then BBC meets Blue Peter. I yeah. mean, it really, and yet that that which must not be named. Did nothing for this. Yeah, the BAFTA put put this on the list, but of course, as you as you said already, they always have to chuck in the old uh, the ironic kind <clears> of <throat> British film kind yeah. of yeah. anything yeah. British. They'll stick it in there, you know. Absolutely. Well, I, anyway, the final point for me is that I salute Sean Ellis, and if he does anything else like this, then I'm going to be a huge fan for the rest of his career. Again, I'm I'm a bit worried that this will have because I think it has done well critically. Yeah. I don't know about financially, and that he will come back and he'll be. Pigeonholed into making Danny Dyer into films. into a council house, yeah, heroin addict you know, film. Perhaps he might get a big star. He's doing some revenge, like Michael Caine in some <laughs> council house thing. <laughs> Just some awful drivel, and you know. And I understand why people do that. If you're going to get a career out of it, you know, you're earning good money. It's a job, but you just dread. That he'll and we have to be honest. This guy has not had a career up to this point. This yeah. this is this is a complete one-off film of, of quality for him. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. And I'm certainly going to keep an eye on what he's going to be doing in the Absolutely. future. Anyway. Absolutely. Let's move on to something I've been looking forward to talking about for quite some time because we, we we look back at things and we rotate. And of course, we've had a lot of deaths recently, <laughs> which we'll be looking back at people's careers. Um, but I thought we'd do that at the beginning this time because I want to talk about Paul, the Great Twin Peaks. I'm intrigued as to how you've seen Twin Peaks, because like uh, you're not you saw you're you not saw an old you man. saw it on BBC Two in the nineties. I did. <laughs> and, and so, as did I, you hunt it out? I did, because as you know, I'm a huge David Lynch fan, yeah. and I've got everything he's ever done on Blu-ray box set. Thank you very much, except for Twin Peaks because it's not on Blu-ray. So I'm watching that on bog-standard um, Amazon HD uh, streaming instead, right? With a promise, by the way, from him from. Um, from David himself, that a Blu-ray of Twin Peaks 1, 2, the garbage film, and a few bonus surprises will be coming in a box mm. later on this year. Mm. He said that in January, so hopefully it's not too far away. Um, the thing is, first point I'd like to... Because we, we don't... When we look back, we don't review, so we're just going to have a nice little general conversation about this. I'd like to bring quite a few points, though, because for me, there's been an awful lot of TV since the 1990s. An awful lot. Far too many for us to mention, and an awful lot of it of good quality as well. Mm. Of course, you've got the Danish stuff that's come over, and that's that's been big business. The HBO stuff, which is big budget. 
This was neither. I, I, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing has been as original or as interesting for a TV series as Twin Peaks. Would you agree? Uh, it's definitely not the Rockford Files, which no. is also my all-time favourite, but then that's about my age. I think what's interesting about Twin Peaks, it's a bit like The Wire, in the sense that you would think it was this fantastic, amazing success, but in reality, no one watched it. But the key people yeah. who write in the media did watch it, yeah. and they did love it. So it's got its reputation and through that. it didn't make anyone's career this. Absolutely. It's really, well, I was going to say this to the end, but we'll bring because it forward. Because no one watched it. We'll bring it, we'll bring it forward. The only, the, I mean, Carl McLachlan, who I'm a big fan of, I'm sure you are as well, yeah. he was, he's been in pretty much most of um, David Lynch's films. He was already working with David Lynch for at least 20 years mm. before this came out. All the rest, I mean, we'll talk about the, some of their great characters in a moment, but all these actors, this was their highlight yeah, pretty in much. being in Twin Peaks. Yep, pretty some, much. Some very, very good actors, you yeah. know. And, but I think that, that's what I always find fascinating is about these things that have a reputation, often deservedly, because they are really, really good, and I think Twin Peaks was incredibly original, and it was in, you would have thought it was immensely talked about at the time, but in reality, nobody watched it. What time was it on at BCT, by the way? Was it late? Was it like uh, after 10? I think or? it was about, no, it was about 10 past 8. Oh, you see, that, that, that surprises me. Because that was a big... Sh- that was the... Because, again, American hour-long programmes in Britain are only about 50 minutes. Well, yeah, because of the adverts. The infomercials. Uh, <laughs> and so there used to be a lot of stuff on BBC Two at 10 past 8. Nice. Uh, so that took you up that to 9 o'clock. That was that time, yeah. yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, when I was a kid, it was the Waltons, High Chaparral. And then it moved on to things like Twin Peaks later in life. And uh, well, not, you, we, we, did you watch this at the, at the time and think... I this, did, this because is... I was a pretentious knob. Uh, when I was, well, nothing's really changed, <laughs> Paul. But... <laughs> what am I talking? <laughs> I was uh, twenty-eight at the time, and so and I was into film. Two two years older than I am now, watching Twin Peaks. That's an interesting. <laughs> there you go. That's so an interesting little thing. That's when it came out, and and because I think uh, I had been a big fan of the Elephant Man, which had come out, I think a little bit before. Yeah, we'll talk briefly on David Lynch's all this stuff in a bit. Yeah, yeah. and I think and then, so that was important because there was a whole kind of uh, oeuvre yeah. of his work that led up to this. And so you, you watched it if you were interested in film. And again, the whole David Lynch thing. Nobody watched his films in real numbers. No. They were very low. Even in America, the audiences were very low. Even for Twin Peaks, which explains why it only lasted two series. Uh, but, it, but it was original. It, was, it had humour, which again was very unusual this for is the, something about a murder. This is the, the thing that... When you look over history of films, TV series, whatever... <laughs> Generally speaking, the stuff that stick in, sticks in your mind the most is the stuff that has the light and the shade. This is this is literally eclipse and then drought, eclipse and then drought. There is so much light and shade for every single character. There are no passengers in the thirty odd episodes of Twin Peaks. Yep, none. Mm. Now I've seen plenty of great TV series. All the Danish stuff we've mentioned. You mentioned The Wire, one of my favourites of recent times. I dare even say, I haven't seen True Detectives, but I dare say they, they suffer from some characters that are just there to make the main one shine. Every single character in Twin True Peaks... True Detectives is very good, actually. I, 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 but it, it has very little humour. Yeah. And I think that's part of its weakness, and it's a bit too gory for its own good. But, and I think the thing that separates Twin Peaks from everything else is that it was a seminal piece of work in that it affected everything that came after it. Yeah. It wasn't like anything before it, and it affected everything that mm. came after it, that often tried to include elements of it, quirkiness, idiosyncrasy, humour, black humour, in a way about and, and even, very serious... And even like Camp Kitsch as well. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that infused everything that came after it, that thought it was a serious work of art, particularly in relation to, to television, and even a lot of films. If you see a, some of these hardcore films like uh, The Prisoner, uh, the one with Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. and and, yeah. and the other bloke that has little bits of humour and stuff in it that you think that's Twin Peaks is is inflecting on that and again because again talking about the age of a lot of film directors now are probably on average about forty that kind of swings about this is what they would have been seeing when they were teenagers yeah, yeah. and so you can't whether you liked it or not and I wasn't always a big fan because sometimes you think. It's going a bit over the, the second, Yeah, for me, the second series is, yeah. is far too long. Yeah. And, well, and when, you, the, when you move from eight episodes to 22, 
you, I think at, gonna I think at that point David knew that he wouldn't get a third yeah. and that he would milk the series, the, the franchise so to speak for every yeah. single um, he just went to town with it yeah. I mean I, um, before actually do you mind if we just step back and talk a bit, little bit about Light and Shade before yeah. we go into some criticisms yeah. um, I really like my favourite thing about this whole thing the villains uh, terrific Ben Horn uh, played by Richard Bamer. Richard again, no career before or after Twin Peaks. Um, the, you know the light and shade. Well, you think he's a criminal. He's just he's just a little bit of a crook. He's not really a, a villain, so to speak. Not a villain of the piece. He's a family man, but he suffers he suffers from deep depression. But he adores food. He adores food. He, he adores his family, and then he loses his mind. He becomes an American Civil War general when he loses his mind. So there's. He, he at some point he even stands up on a table and dances. Completely bizarre character, Windham Earl, the the great thing behind the whole thing. Fantastic. The, the, the hu- what his humour is very very black to and, say the least. And I think I think it's an enormous number of characters, isn't it? They are. Which yeah. again, it was was unique for its time because normally those kind of things stuck to a very narrow audience, uh, very very narrow cast list. True Detectives, for example, it has a very narrow cast. Yeah, yeah, there's very few people. But I think I suppose what I would say is that you couldn't have The Sopranos, for example, without Twin Peaks. No, and I think that shows its importance and its significance. Yeah, indeed. Leyland Palmer for me. Leyland Palmer steals the entire series. A villain that that also loves musical theatre. Yep. Only David Lynch. The the, the singing that he would burst into song. Even, even that really, really, really disturbing scene. When he breaks down and he crashes into the wall and the wall nearly falls off the mm. set, it's it's all fantastically gripping stuff and it is it, it it's actually oh, I wonder how influenced Lars von Trier was from this because there's an awful lot of piece I mean yes the, you do hear a lot of the same tracks of music <laughs> the six tracks all the way through but there's a lot of dialogue scenes where there's quiet and then there's all there's this almighty crescendo. Where something happens, somebody dies, somebody gets attacked, and then you've got some nice, quiet, bouncy humour like wine tasting, or saving the raccoon animal from the from the forest or something. Well, I think in relation you know, to Lars von Trier, you couldn't have had the Kingdom without this. No, and I think well, we, as we've said, yeah. the Kingdom is basically exactly. David Lynch mixed with ER. Yeah. Yeah. and there's there's a direct correlation between the two. And it, but and again, I I like to see old actors in it as well. And it had, had a nice little place for actors like Royal Dano, Jane Greer and David Warner who would pop up and you think, you know, they were a big star in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And I think that's what's nice about David Lynch. He knows his history, he knows yeah. his culture but it, and he knows his stuff. And I, 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 again, I wasn't a big fan. You watched it because it was much more interesting than anything else and it often didn't sustain itself, I think, the 22 episodes in the second series, the final series. Well, yeah, I mean, the, let, let's move back to the criticisms. I don't like David Lynch's cameos in there. Yeah. They don't work... The, I, liked it, I liked it when he, 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 he was chatting with the waitress in, in the cafe. That was relatively amusing because he, he was the only one he wasn't, he wasn't shouting... She was the only one he wasn't shouting at. But the stuff that took place with David Lynch's character in the... In the sheriff's office and the rest of it, yeah. trying to have private conversations but shouting. Yeah. I can see why he thought that would be funny, but yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, um, the it, whole the there whole, are moments of great self indulgence. The whole tangent about who, like, who, which of the two bachelors will get Lucy's baby. Yeah. I found that incredibly tiresome. I thought the log lady was a ridiculous character. Now, as if as if Twin Peaks hasn't got enough senselessness in it. For some reason, the log lady just rubs me up the wrong way completely. It was just... <laughs> because very, very important plot moments would come from the log lady, and she had no other part in the... I know he was playing with us, and he was playing with the whole narrative thing. And she's the mother of Rashid Quincy, who's in Parks and Recreation at the moment. She really? She is, That's yeah. interesting. Because she was married at the time to uh, Quincy Jones. It's just a shame that her character is so utterly ridiculous <laughs> in this. Um, but, you know, away, you know, away from that, what... Scenes do you remember fondly from Twin Peaks? Are there any that stick out? Uh, there and, are. And, and, in if way. You, and if you don't mention the particular moment in season one, I'm going to smack. Well, you. no, no, because there aren't to me. Because you know, again, uh, I haven't seen it because I think I've only seen it when it was on. Yeah. And but what you remember is a feeling of it. Yeah. And I think if anything that can do that is is, is quality. And I think the the vastness of the scope of the number of characters. So there aren't very famous moments. I remember, 
I remember thinking Lara Flynn Boyle was incredibly attractive. Uh, you must remember the dancing dwarf. Sadly, uh, indeed. Yeah. But indeed, and Lara Finn Bloy has, has managed to get thinner as the years have gone by, which is quite an astounding fact. Uh, but I, I liked Jack Nance, because again, yeah. I think I, I was into David Lynch in early days with like a razor head yeah. and, and all of those kind of things that he's in, and then the later stuff. And he's in fact infecting everything until he died uh, that, that uh, David Lynch did. And, and the cinematography of it was, again, was original. The direction was original. So it's that sense of the general, feeling. Yeah, yeah. And it had very bright colours, uh, as I remember. And again, you've got to remember, it's pre-HD. Yeah. It was a shot on American film, which looked different when it yeah. was shown on British standard def- definition. And it, and it had a whole feel to it that made it something that you thought, yeah, I really want to watch this. And if all else fails, David, David Duchovny appears as a woman. Which is always a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think, as we start to round this off, do you think this could be interpreted as David Lynch's best work? Uh, I think potentially yes, actually. Because I think it gave him a canvas. Because often your best work, you've put everything into it and bits of it don't work, bits of it do, bits of it are awful... And bits of it are sublime. A genius, yeah. Whereas if you're making a 90-minute, 120-minute film, you tend to be a lot more focused and a lot narrower. So I would say it is his, it is his peak with everything in his head is in there. And you've got to admire it whether you like it or not. Yeah, I think, I think it'd be really interesting to see this come out. I mean, I will definitely get this again when it comes out on the Blu-ray box, watch all of this stuff again. Why do you think the film failed so much? Uh, Not that the TV series was a great success by any means. Yeah. I think partly because it had too many characters. It had too many ideas. That to them, It was so desperate to, to, to yeah. make sure it was so... Per- well, exactly. And yeah. then to try and force... It's like trying to force, force the ocean into a jam jar. It's, it's a waste of time. You know, if you've got the ocean, stick with the ocean. Why waste your time with a jam jar of... I said, do, you, do you suspect he just wanted to try and make a little bit of money out of this thing before... Uh... No, I think... Because it, it resolves a lot of things. If it I does. Right. It does, yes. And, and I can see, you know, Americans like resolution. And even now you're getting things where TV series had lots of series and then it ended and then they go and make a film that resolves all the issues. It's, it's an American tradition. And it wasn't quite that bad. And I think it gave a much bigger role to Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee, where she is a core part of the film. Yeah, of course. When, in fact, she's hardly ever in the TV series, despite the fact that she's there. You never actually see her alive in the main series. So, and and in a way, that's a kind of nice irony. You never see her in the series, even though it's all about her. And then you make the film and she's in it solely with all these other random characters. Uh, So, uh, I think if you're going to watch the series, you should watch the film if you like nice resolution. I... For me, for me, the seminal piece of of Lynch's career, it's a close call between Eraserhead mm. and probably Eraserhead and Twin Peaks. Mm. However, my personal favourite, generally speaking, is actually Blue Velvet. Mm. I, I love Blue Velvet. I, I mean, that, but it's, th- it's a masterpiece. But I think it's just very different, and it's nice to see an artist put absolutely everything in their head yeah. onto something. And Twin Peaks as a 30-part TV series allows you to do that. And a lot of it doesn't work, but then you see things that you just think, wow. And it's affected everything after it. In as a way said, that I yeah. don't think Blue Velvet did. No, absolutely not. Maybe, maybe it's just the, just the idea that of, of Dennis Hopper, or the, or the idea that they nearly gave Dennis Hopper's character in that film, yeah. Helium, to make him even creepier. And you just think, yeah. well... That's Blue Velvet is an outstanding film, both before, after, and and, you know. But I I would say if you're interested in in quality television now of the kind of detective thriller kind of noir, and there's a new one coming. I I, I say with a lot of irony, the the new Twin Peaks is upon us, Paul Dark, which is Wayward Pines. The first episode of which was directed by M Night Shyamalan. But even Fargo... He was an executive producer on the rest of the episodes as well. Because you've got Fargo, which is coming out as a TV yeah. series. And again, that owes everything to Twin Peaks. Well, well I, I would like us in the in Western Europe to get away with Pines, because I'd like to see it. Yeah. Um, I find it really interesting to see if, again, we can have a success... Well, I say successful, we know what we mean by that. An interesting-to-watch detective in a lonely town TV series. Yeah. 
we'll see. Or I'll be literally going to be saying, well, that's Twin Peaks, but not as good. That's Twin Peaks, but not as good. Twin Peaks was brilliant. Brilliant. Well, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Um, and I'd like to thank all, each and every every one of you once again for downloading us. Uh, we're doing it, we are doing it for you. So do come back to us in a couple of weeks where we'll be doing it all over again. Take care for now. <laughs>